Hello again, stackers. This is Rhett, the Dungeon Master for Stack of Dice, and with me is... Thane, who plays as Peter Greyhawk in our Stack of Dice podcast. That's right, and last time we started off our series, our mini-series on the Heroic Cycle, mm-hmm. which was presented first by Joseph Campbell in his 1949 book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and basically as a teacher of comparative mythology and comparative religion, he was able to use his breadth of knowledge of various texts to find common elements between many of the enduring and huge tales that have been told throughout time and basically start to find common elements that link them together at certain points in the narratives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue. We're going to do a quick recap of the points that we covered last time. And of course, you're always welcome to listen to part one of the heroic cycle. We're going to run through the basic categories and then the subsections of the categories and uh, catch up to where we are going to start today. The three basic breakdowns of the heroic cycle are departure, initiation, and return. And last time we covered all of departure and part of initiation. Within departure, there was the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, supernatural aid, crossing the threshold, and belly of the whale. And then in initiation, there was the road of trials, the meeting with the goddess, woman as temptress, and atonement with the father. That's what we ended on last time. This time we're going to pick up with the next one, and basically we are going to wrap up this mini-series with this episode. We're going to tell you how to tell a good story, but we're not telling you how to tell a good story. Yeah, basically these elements are common elements in many of the world's largest and most loved long-lasting stories, And these are just suggestions. Certainly your story is free to take whatever form you want it to. It is your story and you and your players are telling it together. Mm -hmm. But again, like we ended with the last episode, we wanted to start off by saying these elements become touch points. They become comfort points that players begin to realize, oh, okay, we're getting to this part of the story. Yeah, kind of like milestones. Yeah. It was was, uh, neat because... uh, we started watching the original Star Wars movies just a couple of days ago. Now, with all this in mind, I can really start to really see the elements of the heroic cycle in Star Wars, seeing as George Lucas did draw heavily on that as mm-hmm. his influence. Very good. So what we're going to do is we'll start today, and here are the elements that we're going to talk about. Apotheosis, the ultimate boon, refusal of the return, and this is in the return section, the magic flight, rescue from without, the crossing of the return threshold, master of two worlds, and freedom to live. So we'll start off with apotheosis, and here's what the Wikipedia article on the heroic cycle, or the hero's journey, has to say about apotheosis. This is the point of realization in which a greater understanding is achieved, Armed with this new knowledge and perception, the hero is resolved and ready for the more difficult part of the adventure. And here's what Joseph Campbell had to say. Those who know not only that the everlasting lies in them, but that what they and all things really are is the everlasting, dwell in the groves of the wish-fulfilling trees, drink the brew of immortality, and listen everywhere to the unheard music of eternal concord. So, Thinking about gaining knowledge in The Lord of the Rings and in Star Wars, where do you see those th- this particular element taking hold in those stories? Uh, at least in Star Wars, I particularly see it in um, 
Luke really starting to see how all the Force works, mm-hmm. especially with his time with Yoda. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say Dagobah, where he where he goes into that tree in the swamp, mm-hmm. and he fights with Darth Vader only to find that it's him inside yeah. the suit. Yeah. Uh, there's that moment of awakening and realization that him turning evil is possible. So there's that level of realization, but then also with the training that he gets there, he begins to realize he comes back out of the swamp planet aware, more aware of how to use the force. Absolutely. What about Lord of the Rings? Um, I think there's one very clear picture. I am not as familiar with Lord of the Rings as I should like to be. It's been a while since I last read them. How about with Gandalf's return? Oh, so when he becomes Gandalf the white, after falling in Moria, he fights long with the Balrog as they plummet to the core of the earth, or to the roots of the mountain, or however it's phrased. Yeah, wherever. And basically through that symbolic death and rebirth as Gandalf the White, he takes on new power, he ousts Saruman the White from his position. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly there's this apotheosis, and apotheosis means a becoming of a god. So you're you're basically putting aside mortal things, putting aside petty things to take on new, more powerful capabilities. A form of ascension. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Alright, the next one is the ultimate boon. And that's not boom as in kaboom. It's boon oh. as in a gift or something given. Yeah. Like an explosion. The ultimate boon is the achievement of the goal of the quest. It is what the hero went on the journey to get. All the previous steps serve to prepare and purify the hero for this step, since in many myths, the boon is something transcendent, like the elixir of life itself, or a plant that supplies immortality, or the holy grail. Campbell says, The gods and goddesses then are to be understood as embodiments and custodians of the elixir of imperishable being, but not themselves the ultimate in its primary state. What the hero seeks through his intercourse with them is therefore not finally themselves, but their grace, that is, the power of their sustaining substance. This miraculous energy, substance, and this alone is the imperishable, the names and forms of the deities who everywhere embody, dispense, and represent it, come and go, and so on. Hmm. So where do we see the ultimate boon in Star Wars? I'm thinking it's... Hmm. Let's stick with the original movie. What was the, what was the ultimate boon? In this case, it is the ultimate boon because uh, I, think, oh, right, yeah, I think it's the Death Star being uh, destroyed. Yeah, you know what? That makes sense, yeah. So they, there's this huge evil force, this malignant force in space that has the capability to destroy great things. Mm-hmm. And so the rebels must rally, uh, gather their dispersed forces, fight against overwhelming odds, that sort of thing, and they are able to destroy the Death Star. So I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds right to me. I wasn't really thinking along. I was thinking more along the lines of attaining good rather than ridding oneself of evil. But mm-hmm. I, I guess it can work like that as well. Yeah. And so in, in that case, then, what about Lord of the Rings? The destruction of the ring, I'd say. Yeah, I think that would be it. So the goal that the heroes are striving for is finally accomplished, and therefore the core of the story is complete. Mm-hmm. But then that leads to now what? Yeah, yeah, because after the goal is attained, after the enemy is defeated, then you have to kind of wonder, 
what happens now? Where do I go? What do I do? Yeah. This is when we kind of start to see just the winding down of the story and, you know, um, what the hero goes on to do and how the world is changed by his actions. Yeah. And that takes us to the next step, and that is the refusal of the return. Having found bliss and enlightenment in the other world, the hero may not want to return to the ordinary world to bestow the boon onto his fellow men. Campbell says, when the hero quest has been accomplished through penetration to the source or through the grace of some male or female human or animal personification, the adventurer still must return with his life-transmuting trophy. The norm of the monomyth requires that the hero shall now begin the labor of bringing the runes of wisdom, the golden fleece, or his sleeping princess back into the kingdom of humanity, where the boon may redound to the renewing of the community, the nation, the planet, or the ten thousand worlds. But the responsibility has been frequently refused. And so on. This is, you know, understandable. You know, you have found eternal life, bliss, enlightenment, whatever the purpose of the story is. And one, for maybe even just purely selfish reasons, you may not want to go back because what you have found is great and um, you don't want to leave it. Or two, you can't find the strength to do so. I really see this as a very real thing. So even if the main characters, even if the heroes start off as very humble people, like in the case of Frodo and, and Sam in The Lord of the Rings, by the time they get to the end and they've destroyed the ring, look at all the things they've been through. Yeah. They have they wandered to faraway places. They've met high people, uh, lords and kings and so on. They've dined with elves. They've consorted with warriors. They've faced great dangers and evils and things. And then to think about coming back to a quiet life in the Shire. And then just the whole process of having to go all the way back across Middle-earth to get back home. Sure. It just, just seemed daunting to me. But even when they get there, I, I see, uh, you know, there's no excitement anymore. Yeah. The challenge of life that you have grown accustomed to through travel and, and arduous labor suddenly that's not there and it feels like maybe life is too easy or too boring i think this is best evident uh in bilbo mm -hmm. exactly from the, from the transition from from the transition from the hobbit to the lord of the rings because he he's lived this whole life of quiet you know he's lived this respectful quiet life and he's been called up into this adventure and he goes through it, and then in the end, he realizes that it's fantastic, the life of going out and going to see things and do things and be with people and whatnot. And so he gets back, and then everything in the Shire just seems dull and, and boring to him, which is why he ends up getting up and leaving and going off to Rivendell. Well, even while he's still making up his mind to do that, it's obvious that he misses that adventurous life because he's doing little jokes. He... Um he, it's like he's almost purposely prodding at people. He's being ex eccentric, one, because of that, that's just who he is now, and two, because he really wants to shake things up exactly. in the Shire. Yeah. So do we see that in Star Wars? Do we see a refusal to return? Um, not directly, but I do think it's kind of evident in uh, the scene of the death of Darth Vader when... Uh, you know, Luke carries him all the way down to the to the hangar area, and they're about to get on. The Vader is like, "No, I'm not going to make it." So you know, mm. take off my mask, 
And so he has this whole scene of where he gets to like see, you get to see his face. Yeah. He and his son see each other face to face for the first time ever. I think in that moment, Luke was kind of contemplating whether or not just to stay there with his father and go, go down with him or something like that. And so in that, in a sense, there might've been a bit of a refusal of the return there. But in the end, we know that he did fly off with, with Vader and uh, give him a proper burial on Endor. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think, is that where Return of the Jedi ends up leaving things just with, with that funeral scene? Uh, pr- yeah, pretty much. Because like everything else kind of sorts... I do, I do realize, as I was watching, that the order in which the, heroes, the, the heroic cycle uh, happens in the movie is a little bit off. It's not completely... Um, the way it's laid out. Here. The way it's laid out. It still works very well, obviously. But George Lucas doesn't really follow it word for word. Rigidly, yeah. And that's the great thing about this. Like we mentioned last time, Dungeon Masters don't feel like you have to follow. If you intend to follow this, don't feel like you have to do it according to the book because there's no such thing. Yeah. While it's laid out this way, you are certainly free to retool this, drop out an element altogether. You may mm-hmm. not even need it. Yeah. Um, and that may add some spice to your game to realize, yeah. oh, we don't need this element after all. And what would that do to the world? Maybe the resolution is fairly self-explanatory just with the defeat of the enemy. And so you could very well just leave it with you know, last session is just the, you know, the players beating the boss. And then after that, just kind of leaving it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Two things before we move on to the next one. Number one, one of my favorite quotes is by Terry Pratchett, an author with whom many of our listeners will be familiar because of his writing with fantasy and his uh, Discworld series of novels. But at the end of A Hat Full of Sky, he wrote, Why do you go away so that you can come back? So that you can see the place you came from with new eyes and extra colors. And the people there see you differently, too. Coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. And I really like this because I think it encapsulates the spirit of this refusal to return. This idea, you go away and then life takes on new meaning. You begin to see things that you never would have considered before. You understand things differently than you would have if you had never left. And so when you come back, and again, we see it very clearly in The Lord of the Rings, people see Bilbo as weird. When he comes back. Oh, yeah. They see him as very different. He's, he's not right. Yeah. And so um, I just I love this, and it I could, appreciate it very much. And that as maybe another potential refusal to the return is that you want to kind of preserve that view you had of wherever you came from, and so you don't want to go back for fear that you just won't see it the same. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, Refusal can take many different forms. It can be not wanting to conform to life as it was, and it can be maybe just altogether not going back, period. So at the end of The Lord of the Rings, hopefully we're not spoiling too much, but Frodo basically decides, I'm going to follow the elves into the West. And so he basically hops on a ship and takes off to the islands beyond Middle-earth, but it's Sam who stays behind. It is Sam who settles back down into life in the Shire, marries Rosie. What it does is it makes him the true hero of the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he is the one who has to deal with restoring life in the Shire. 
he is the one who has to deal with the effects of all the ravages of war and famine and all those things. There have been a lot of issues going on in the Shire in the absence of Frodo and Sam. So when Sam comes back, he's taking on a lot of work. If you're looking for great commentary on the Lord of the Rings in general, I suggest looking up an older podcast. I'm not sure if it's out of episodes, if it's still running or anything, but there was a series by the Tolkien professor that I listened to several years ago, and he and several of his guests really broke down the book neatly and introduced me to the idea that Sam is actually the true hero of the story. Yeah, I kind of started noticing that, especially... um when you get to Return of the King, and I mean, all throughout, um, Sam definitely shows a bit more heroism than Frodo in the fact that he's not exactly required to be there, and yet there he is. And uh, all the while, he is showing this complete and utter loyalty to Frodo, following him even into the depths of the underworld that is Mordor. Yeah, and even though Frodo is the one carrying the ring... Sam carries Frodo at some points. Sam carries Frodo at some points, but he's also the one who says, come on, Mr. Frodo, we've got to keep moving. Just one more step, just one more step. And so, yeah, Frodo is the one carrying the actual burden, but Sam is the one who is prodding him to keep him going. And so yeah. in those moments, he really takes the heroic front. Yeah. I like it. All right. I think we've done a fair job on that point. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on to the magic flight. Sometimes the hero must escape with the boon if it is something that the gods have been jealously guarding. It can be just as adventurous and dangerous returning from the journey as it was to go on it. Campbell says, if the hero in his triumph wins the blessing of the goddess or the god and is then explicitly commissioned to return to the world with some elixir for the restoration of society, the final stage of his adventure is supported by all the powers of his supernatural patron. On the other hand, if the trophy has been attained against the opposition of its guardian, or if the hero's wish to return to the world has been resented by the gods or demons, then the last stage of the mythological round becomes a lively, often comical, pursuit. This flight may be complicated by marvels of magical obstruction and evasion. So let's talk about it. The first thing that comes to mind with me is, uh, I recently finished reading The Call of Allah, which... Imagine Beowulf, but for the Finnish people, and it's a whole lot longer. <laughs> uh, but it's it's this big old long winding story that that bounces all over the place. But uh, it's near the end when you really start to see like the the major part of the narrative is uh, Ilmarinen, the Eternal Hammer, the Divine Smith, creates this object called the Sampo, which is like this bringer of fortune, and gives it to Lohi, this old woman. And so the main character of the story goes to retrieve the Sampo, and on his way back, he, he's been chased by Lohi. There's this chase scene as Lohi, who has turned herself into his big old bird creature, is following after them. And so that's what I see first off. Yeah, yeah. Now, as far as The Lord of the Rings, was it a sanctioned return or was it a, an opposed return? I don't know. Because you haven't gotten that far. I haven't. Basically... I don't know if Tolkien just figured that the core of his story was enough, but they they fly back on the giant eagles. And so that kind of leaves you wondering, why didn't they just take the eagles in the first place? <laughs> the book could have been a lot skinnier. <laughs> a whole lot skinnier. <laughs> uh, but obviously, his intent was to show the struggles before the destruction of the ring, as opposed to 
at the end. There, now, there were still struggles to overcome at the end of the story. Yeah, there were still things to clean up. Right. But being able to just basically hop on an eagle, fly back over Middle Earth to the Shire or wherever, makes a huge difference. However you want to handle that, Dungeon Masters, consider that the way home after the major quest is accomplished can be just as much of a quest as getting to the end game. I think that's a neat idea and one that I hadn't really considered. Yeah. Next is Rescue from Without. Just as the hero may need guides and assistance to set out on the quest, often he must have powerful guides and rescuers to bring them back to everyday life, especially if the person has been wounded or weakened by the experience. Campbell says, The hero may have to be brought back from a supernatural adventure by assistance from without. That is to say, the world may have to come and get him. For the bliss of the deep abode is not lightly abandoned in favor of the self-scattering of the wakened state who, having cast off the world, we read, would desire to return again. He would be only there. And yet, in so far as one is alive, life will call. And there's more after that. But what do you think? I think this is also kind of playing into the whole refusal of the return. If the hero is having difficulty, you know, returning of his own will, then usually some kind of outside force is called upon in order to bring him back. All right, where do we see that in The Lord of the Rings? Frodo, at long last, makes it to Mount Doom. He and Sam have braved all the dangers of Mordor. They've hidden and snuck their way past all the guards and everything. They finally get to the summit, and Frodo is standing there, ready to toss the ring in, and he cannot let go. And it's at that point that Gollum, seeing the ring and trying to take it from Frodo, ends up falling with the ring with the ring into the lava below gotcha and so it's a a moment that is hard for us to understand for if if we've never been in the position you have fought your way why not just get rid of the thing and be done with it Mm -hmm. but it's almost like stockholm syndrome a little bit and also just you know bear in mind the whole nature of the ring Mm -hmm. i mean absolutely i mean in the very beginning when we're told of how it escaped destruction the first time uh isildur is ready to throw it in and elrond is telling him to do it and he just turns around and just decides to keep it because of its luring power yes and of course that led to the whole mess that is the Lord of the rings not that it is a mess but like the whole complication of the situation yeah very good what do you think about star wars <sighs> who is the rescuer from without that imperial shuttle upon which Luke flew out of the Death Star—I <laughs> don't know. Um, uh, again, focusing purely on the first movie, Luke is in the trench, flying toward the exhaust port. Yes, yes. And then uh, he's focused on the targeting computer, which is important to note that failed the previous pilot who made the run. He went all the way down the trench using the targeting computer fired off the proton torpedoes, and they didn't land. It's no good. They impacted on the surface. Yep. And so Luke's going down the trench, and then suddenly Obi-Wan Kenobi speaks to him and says, you know, trust your feelings. And so uh, essentially put your gadget away, kid. <laughs> Pull down that blast shield on your helmet. Yes. And so Luke reaches over and presses the button, which is on the opposite side of the cockpit. I don't know why the button was there, because he had to like reach over with his left hand. It was weird. Anyway. It's a design flaw. It was a serious design flaw. Why did X-Wings need wings? 
<laughs> yeah, that's a very that's good okay. point. Anyway, because they look cool. Anyway, uh, then he just waits until it just feels right and he lets it go. And then by that, the um, the Death Star is destroyed. Otherwise, he probably would have failed. And yeah, so it would have been a very short series. So it's Obi-Wan's guidance that guided him through that moment. So that's, that's a bit of help from without. Mm-hmm. The hero gets assistance that he would not have gotten on his own. I was also thinking of Han because even without yes. Obi-Wan's even with Obi-Wan's guidance, Luke was still being tailed by Darth Vader. Yeah, he was he even had him right in the crosshairs and he was mm-hmm. ready to start mm-hmm. firing and then pew pew. That's right. So with Han's timely arrival Super timely. <laughs> like it was scripted. Oh wow. <laughs> he was able to help Luke accomplish the ultimate boon. The ultimate boom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So rescue from without. Let's go on to the crossing of the return threshold. According to Campbell, the returning hero to complete his adventure must survive the impact of the world. The trick in returning is to retain the wisdom gained on the quest to integrate that wisdom into human life, and then maybe figure out how to share the wisdom with the rest of the world. Campbell says, Many failures attest to the difficulties of this life-affirmative threshold. The first problem of the returning hero is to accept as real, after an experience of the soul-satisfying vision of fulfillment, the passing joys and sorrows, banalities and noisy obscenities of life. Why re-enter such a world? Why attempt to make plausible or even interesting to men and women consumed with passion the experience of transcendental bliss? As dreams that were momentous by night may seem simply silly in the light of day, so the poet and the prophet can discover themselves playing the idiot before a jury of sober eyes. First thoughts. I am not exactly thinking about a story, but I'm actually thinking about the uh, aftermath of World War One. Hmm. Basically, up until World War One, war was very much an, uh, seen as an adventure. It was this honorable, uh, very ordered form of fighting. You had lines of brightly colored infantry and and cavalry charges and all these things. And then World War One came in a dash of mud and steel and dirt. And it was th- very much the opposite. And so all these kids with these bright eyes going off to war come back dull. And you you had men who are suffering with PTSD. You had horrendous uh, wounds that disfigured the face and, and all these things. And so you have all these people coming back to normal everyday life after having grown up on the front, basically. And now they're trying to get back into living like normal people with scars within and without. Yeah. And even the people around them don't really get it because they still have their very technicolor, even though it hadn't been invented yet, version of war in their minds. And they just thought these men were being cowardly. Yeah. And uh, we see this, I think, in The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember what gift Sam got from Galadriel? He oh uh, he got a box of earth yeah. from Lothlorien. Yeah, he actually in the final chapters he uses that earth to regrow trees in the Shire, and so here he has basically devoted himself to restoring the world. He has made that cross into the old life hmm. again that the others like Frodo chose not to accept. So we have the perhaps true hero of the Lord of the Rings, Sam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> making that transition. And it's such an interesting notion that the the humblest oh, yeah. character... He was a gardener. 
is the one who really deserves the most praise and recognition because he is, he's willing to stick it out. And I just, Mm -hmm. I love that about Sam. (sighs) Sam's too good for this world. (laughs) All right, let's move on to master of two worlds. This step is usually represented by a transcendental hero. For a human hero, it may mean achieving a balance between the material and spiritual. The person has become comfortable and competent in both the inner and outer worlds. Campbell says, Freedom to pass back and forth across the world division from the perspective of the apparitions of time to that of the causal deep and back, not contaminating the principles of the one with those of the other, yet permitting the mind to know the one by virtue of the other, is the talent of the master. So where do you see in either Star Wars or The Lord of the Rings? Where do you see this? I definitely see it in Star Wars, where by the end of Return of the Jedi, we see Luke, who now stands as a fully grown man, who has become two things at the same time. He has become the fulfillment of the Jedi, being the most prominent force user now, and also as a hero of the Rebellion. And so, in a sense, he has become master of both the material and the, and the spiritual being, yeah. being a hero and the, the Jedi. Yeah. And kind of like with Sam, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a while, it's been years since I last read The Lord of the Rings. Even after he returns to the Shire, every now and then he'll get elves coming through to visit. And so you have that mystical side of Sam. Same with uh, Bilbo. Yeah, and Bilbo did it too. Um, I think he kept in touch with the dwarves. Oh yeah, yeah, constantly. Yeah, and so they hold on to parts of their adventuresome life, but they're also tied to the life they've returned to. Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. (laughs) Very good. Finally, there's the freedom to live. In this step, mastery leads to freedom from the fear of death, which in turn is the freedom to live. This is sometimes referred to as living in the moment, neither anticipating the future nor regretting the past. Campbell says the hero is the champion of things becoming, not of things become, because he is. He does not mistake apparent changelessness in time for the permanence of being, nor is he fearful of the next moment or of the other thing as destroying the permanent with its change. So what do you think? So I'm kind of seeing parallels again with the Kalevala. So after uh, the main character, Vainamoinen, comes back with the Sampo, and Lohi is defeated, and all the excitement comes to an end, he returns the sun and moon to where they once were because Lohi took them. Then he goes back to uh, living normally. He, uh, you know, the, the very end of the Kalevala is describing a bear hunt. It's just kind of a very joyous scene because bear hunts were very ritually significant, but there was just a whole lot of dancing and singing and joy in this whole familiar tradition that the main character returns to in the end. Uh, and he's at peace, he lives happy with his people, and everything's just kind of good. Yeah, and I get the same sense about the end of Beowulf. Yes. Towards the time of his third fight with the dragon, he's old, uh, he has accomplished everything that we read about with Grendel and his mother, and so he has become a great leader of men, he has become a true king when word comes that the dragon is starting to lash out for the treasure stolen from its lair. Beowulf is like, okay, I'm going to go take care of it. 
and he goes into single combat, and that's where, of course, he dies. Yeah, you said Beowulf, and I, um, I immediately thought of the very end where the woman's like wailing about how their country's going to be invaded and people are going to die, and I'm like, is that though? <laughs> that's the end of. That's after Beowulf yeah, is that's, dead. That's after he's so dead. I'm referring yeah. to Beowulf yeah. as the hero. Oh yeah, I see it now. All right. So we have gone through the last eight. What we did not do this time that we did last time was talk about ways that you could incorporate these elements into your own game. So we're going to go back and do that very quickly, starting with apotheosis. So this is kind of when uh, the characters are no longer the people that they set out on the adventure as, but they become the people who they are going to be after this. I think this is better suited in a more role-playing heavy game Mm -hmm. when we really have some event that really causes the characters to really mature and grow as uh, individuals and also as the party. And we've kind of done that a little bit in our game with the granting of titles. As you've accomplished great things on behalf of others, you've been given names or titles that indicate what you have done. And so in a sense, that is your raising of honor, your raising of esteem in the sight of that particular group Mm -hmm. of people. And therefore, you are emerging maybe primed to help the next group i myself and i think also peter see our group now as more like heroes than at least when we first started out as like you know i'm just this village priest we've got a miner and some crazy dude from the forest going out (laughs) to save the world yeah after we've gone through all these things and we've we've been given like official names that ascribe the, our deeds to us. And now Peter is a little bit more confident in the fact that he is a hero and that he's going to do what he can to be the hero that he needs to be for Edelin. Okay. The ultimate boon. Remember, this is the accomplishment of that final goal, the goal of the quest. And obviously we see that in our game where you're still working toward that. You have not gotten to that point yet. I think a little, I don't like a tiny version of that was achieved when we defeated Kalawakas at the top of the pillar. Mm-hmm. And certainly, yeah, dungeon masters use milestones, use smaller events that lead up to the final event, perhaps as a way of pacing your game. When we first were planning the podcast game, I actually intended to do it as a milestone based thing. By the time they get to this point, they should be at about this level. And so I've basically been trying to pace their level advancement so that when they got to the fight with Kaluakos, they were about that particular level. And so I have touch points in the game that allow the story to kind of go wherever it wants, but then eventually I need to start driving them back toward that touch point. And then once they've accomplished that, they can go back out to wherever again. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a way that you can work that into your own game. I definitely did like it. Uh, we were kind of on a set track for a good bit up until we f- we got to the first pillar, we defeated Kalawakos, and then the world was then open to us in that instant, I think, because then we knew of the places because we, we had gone through, we had gathered all the information, and now that we had gotten to our first pillar, now we knew where all the other ones were because of the many texts that we had gathered up, and now we knew that we have we can go here, we can go here, and we can go here. There are a couple other places. Now we just need to figure out which way we're going first. Yeah. That's what I was hoping for, was that you all would feel like you have control over the story. That's what I want, ultimately. I want the players to feel like they've got the story. And sure, I do some planning in between sessions 
to build up the story based on what I know they're going to do next. But there have been some episodes where it ends and it's just like, I have no idea what you're going to do next. So I'm not even going to prepare. <laughs> and those have been fun episodes to record. Yes. Because very good. I literally don't know what you're going to do next. All right. Refusal of the return. How could you work that into a game? You've accomplished your goal. The call home is there, but maybe something is keeping you from just going straight home. So maybe after you achieve the goal, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely uh, seeing a lot from Lord of the Rings here of like the effort of getting back home just seems like so much. You know, you, you've traveled all this way, you fought through all these things, and home is so very far away. And so it might just be easier to, I don't know, go down with this ship or uh, stay here and, and settle here and live a life alone or something like that in solitude, or you've grown. Good. Maybe your party decides there's other greater adventures to be had. Mm-hmm. We can just keep on going. Yeah. And we've gotten so used to this life as being out and about, and why go back when we can continue to do good, which is a perfectly viable option if you don't feel like ending the game right there. Yeah, and if you, especially if you have rules that will take you into higher levels than mm-hmm. 20, uh, certainly the game really opens up then. Then you're dealing with godlike characters and <laughs> powers and things. Yikes. Yeah, even more godlike than 20th level is. Yeah, and I think on the Dungeon Masters Guild, there are third-party published books about those elevated characters. So if you're interested, check them out. They've got some good stuff. The Magic Flight. How about that return home, the, the actual return home? The, the process of getting from where the quest ended back to that comfortable beginning point. So we're getting to the part where it gets a little bit more difficult to really implement these things as distinct aspects to your games because at least kind of here onward, it just gets to like, you you can almost just make it kind of like a cutscene of just you wrapping up all the action, you know, like you have now become the rulers of the country. And so now in command of the armies, you round up the last of the evil insurgents and you drive back the invaders and you reestablish stability and all this stuff, it can be a bit difficult to really make this a definite part of your uh, resolution. It could. And maybe an enterprising DM could basically pass off the adventure at that point to a lower level group. Perhaps. That would allow your story to continue. The party is too worn or too jaded or whatever to actually continue with further adventures, and so maybe the crew on the ship takes over. So there's more to do, and so you just start over with a new perspective. Yeah, could be. Or the children of the adventuring party. That too. (laughs) That could be very interesting. I remember that was like one of the things we were planning to do with the podcast. Yeah. You You are the descendants or the direct children of these renowned adventurers from long ago yeah, or, or your parents or whatever. Or somebody, yeah. Just dir- <laughs> fun ideas, fun ideas. I'm the direct descendant of my parents? What? <laughs> Rescue from without. So this is, again, like supernatural aid that helps in the return home. So the merciful cosmic entity who teleports you back to your native realm after you finish the fight with the god of chaos... Or the magical whale that carries you up from the depths of the sunken sea to dry land, back to where you are safe. Now, something that has always been an intriguing notion for me is the party 
gets to the end, they finish the quest, maybe they're level 15 or something, they're, they're feeling really strong and powerful and stuff, and the quest giver, whether it's a deity or just a, a powerful local regional ruler or something, says, great, you've done it. And then through either actions or words or some sort of revelation, the party realizes, oh, we helped the wrong person. Yes, that's always been an interesting way of like turning it around because it's definitely good to have a very clear black and white story where you go through all the things and at the very end you know you're congratulated and you're like yes we have done the good thing and we have bettered the world but then it's it's so much more interesting uh or it can be at the very least to make it a twist really good uh there's the crossing of the return threshold again i think you you hit on something very important a lot of dms like to montage this at the end yeah Um, you you have defeated the thing you make your way back the king awards you whatever that ends up being yeah what we're hoping is that dungeon masters will begin to see these as viable parts of the story that could really be fleshed out developed Mm -hmm. and turned into something neat crossing that return threshold you're starting to look again i think this lends itself more towards a role play heavy oh yeah group definitely and game style Getting into the mindset of your character. I am back and I've had all these experiences. What do I do with that? Mm -hmm. And then maybe the next campaign is your old characters. So now they're like in their 80s or whatever. (laughs) And they're having to rally the community. We're called once again to fight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can have a lot of fun with that. Master of two worlds and freedom to live. I think we'll just lump those together. Master of two worlds. I could really see... Again, the fun of I can work at the cosmic level, I can work at the community level. The next game, the players are now the new characters, and their quest giver is like one of the members of the mm. prior party because he has he has ascended. Still has local interest. Still has local interest because, you know, this is like his hometown or whatever. And maybe he calls upon these adventurers to go find his lost companions who were taken in some dark scheme to use their powers. I'm like, I just gave you guys a free campaign idea. You can thank me later. <laughs> All right. And freedom to live, being free from the fear of death. Mm-hmm. You've you know done whatever you need to do. You've gained the highest power that you can. And perhaps you know maybe a great summary to a story would be Maybe the rest of the party has died of natural causes or in the process of completing the quest. And now the final survivor of the party just wants to find a a quiet way to wind down his life. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? Dungeon Masters, I think there's a lot of room there for some really great storytelling. So we've talked quite a bit about the heroic cycle between last episode and this one. We hope you've enjoyed it, Stackers. We hope that this will be beneficial to you. Again, like last time, we'll post the link to the wiki article on the hero's journey. And I think it's been good for me to see these things laid out to refresh my memory about the different elements, the uh, 17 different elements that represent the heroic cycle. And again, watching TV shows that I'm familiar with and seeing that progression is really neat. Once you're aware of it, you begin to really focus. Oh, yeah, that's... Oh... And so it takes on new meaning to you. Check it out. Try it out. I'd love to hear from you if anything comes up like that in your own experience. Feel free to hit us on Twitter and Instagram at stackodice. And our email address is stack.o.dice at gmail.com. We love to hear from stackers. What do you think about all this? And with that, 
We look forward to seeing you next time right here at Stack of Dice. The three basic breakdowns of the heroic cycle. The three basic ba- the the. Uh speaking dwarvish we're back no that wasn't dwarvish that was just dumbish